York. This is Democracy Now! This violent act was not in pursuit of public safety. It was not in the interest of keeping the public safe because one must ask, was not it in the interest of keeping the public safe that Tyree Nichols would be with us here today? Vice President Kamala Harris addresses mourners in Memphis at the funeral of Tyree Nichols. He died January 10th after being brutally beaten by police following a traffic stop. We'll air excerpts of the funeral. Then Atlanta announces Cop City will go forward despite growing opposition and the police killing of a forest defender. We'll look at Atlanta's crackdown on protesters. I reviewed the arrest warrants for 19 opponents of Cop City charged with domestic terrorism and found that none of them are accused of seriously injuring anyone. Plus, we speak to Shanak Sen, the director of the Oscar-nominated documentary All That Breathes, about two brothers who run a bird hospital in New Delhi, India. Life itself is kinship. We are all a community of air. One shouldn't differentiate between all that breathes. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Mourners gathered in Memphis Wednesday for the funeral of Tyree Nichols, a 29-year-old black father whose death after a brutal police beating has sparked protests across the country. Speakers at the funeral included Vice President Kamala Harris and the Reverend Al Sharpton. This is Tyree's mother, Rovon Wells. Tyree was a beautiful person. And for this to happen to him, it's just unimaginable. I, I promise you the only thing that's keeping me going is the fact that I really, truly believe my son was sitting here on an assignment from God. Newly released documents show four of the five officers who are facing murder charges for killing Tyree Nichols had faced prior disciplinary complaints. The local district attorneys reportedly considering new charges against the officers, including false reporting for lying on the initial police report. The College Board has revised its curriculum for an advanced placement African-American studies course just weeks after Florida's Republican Governor Ron DeSantis threatened to ban the class in Florida schools. The revised curriculum removes Black Lives Matter, slavery reparations and queer theory as required topics, while it adds a section on black conservatism. Many prominent authors and academics have also been removed from the AP curriculum, including the late James Baldwin, the writer Tanahasi. Coates, the law professors Michelle Alexander and Kimberly Crenshaw, Professor Barbara Ransby, and the late Bell Hooks. UCLA professor Robin D.G. Kelly, whose writings were also removed from the curriculum, said, quote, this is deeper than an AP course. This is about eliminating any discussion that might be critical of the United States of America, which is a dangerous thing for democracy, unquote. The College Board announcement came on the first day of Black History Month.
The Biden administration's reached an agreement with the Philippines to give the United States access to four more military bases in the former U.S. colony. This will allow the U.S. greater access to the South China Sea and Taiwan as tensions rise between Washington and Beijing. The deal was announced after U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin met Philippine President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. in Manila. Marcos is the son of the former dictator, Ferdinand Marcos, who was a close U.S. ally. Filipino activists held a protest outside the military camp where Austin and Marcos met. This is former lawmaker and activist Teddy Casino. Filipinos do not need additional American troops and facilities in the country. Uh, it will only serve to increase the tensions in the South China Sea and the Taiwan Strait. And uh, deploying additional facilities and troops in the Philippines will drag the country into the conflict which is between China and the United States. A Russian missile strike has destroyed an apartment building in the eastern Ukrainian city of Kramatorsk, killing at least three people, injuring 30. This comes as Ukrainian leaders fear Russia has begun its largest offensive since the start of the war. Hundreds of thousands of Russian troops are now inside Ukraine. Meanwhile, Reuters is reporting the United States is preparing to announce a new $2 billion military package for Ukraine that'll include new longer-range missiles made by Boeing for the first time. In other news on the war, Human Rights Watch has accused the Ukrainian military of using thousands of banned anti-personnel landmines around the eastern city of Izium when it was occupied by Russia. In Burma, leaders of the ruling military junta extended a state of emergency by another six months Wednesday, the second anniversary of the coup that overthrew the civilian government of Aung San Suu Kyi. Nearly 3,000 people have been killed over the past two years in a brutal crackdown on protests. Across Burma, people took part in a silent protest as streets emptied and businesses shuttered for the day. Protests also took place around the world, including in Tokyo, where members of the Burmese community gathered to speak out on the anniversary of the coup. In Myanmar, there are so many people being killed and so many houses being burnt down. The people in Myanmar and those of us abroad need to work together to show that our voices are the same. In related news, a new investigation by The Guardian reveals how the U.S., U.K., and Irish oil and gas service companies have continued to reap massive profits in Burma following the 2021 military coup while propping up the junta. The U.S. companies include Halliburton, Diamond Offshore Drilling, and Baker Hughes. In Britain, half a million teachers, civil servants and train drivers joined a nationwide strike Wednesday, forcing schools to shut down and halting rail service. It was the largest such work stoppage in a generation, coming on the heels of a historic nurses' strike last month. Workers called for fair wages and soar amidst soaring inflation. Some 300,000 teachers took part in Walkout Wednesday. This is Mary Bausted of the National Education Union. Teachers are striking in England and Wales today because there has been, over the last 12 years, a really catastrophic long-term decline in their pay. Teachers have lost 13% uh, over that period. That's, uh, in real terms, a huge amount to lose. And uh, that is causing a re recruitment and retention crisis in our schools. A number of students joined their teachers on the street, including 10-year-old Issa Yaboa-Sante from London. 
school is suffering from our teachers not having enough money to be paid. So I think that I should miss some school because I believe that teachers should have their funding. In Iran, a couple who posted a video of themselves dancing in the street has been sentenced to five years in prison each, according to local reports. 21-year-old Astiaj Hagigi and her fiancé, 22-year-old Amir Mohammed Amadi, were arrested after posting a video on Instagram of themselves dancing in front of the Azadi Tower in downtown Tehran. In the video, Astiaj's hair was uncovered. The video was posted in November's nationwide protest following the death of 22-year-old Masamini rocked Iran. The Republican-trolled House of Representatives has voted 218 to 209 along party lines to move forward with the resolution to remove Democratic Congressmember Ilhan Omar from the House Committee on Foreign Affairs. A final House vote is expected today. In an interview on CNN, Omar said Republicans are targeting her because she is Muslim. You remember Marjorie Taylor Greene? coming to Congress after Rashida and I got sworn in and saying Muslims are infiltrating Congress. You remember Boebert saying that I was a terrorist. What did McCarthy do? He said she apologized and we don't have to worry about her Islamophobia. That never happened. And so these people are okay with Islamophobia. They're okay with trafficking in their own ways, in anti-Semitism. They are not okay with having a Muslim have a voice on that committee. Congress member Ilhan Omar is the only African Muslim refugee in Congress. In economic news, the Federal Reserve has approved an additional quarter-point hike to its benchmark interest rate. In a statement, the Groundwork Collaborative criticized the Fed's decision, saying, quote, with today's rate hike, the Fed is pushing us dangerously close to an unnecessary recession that would spell disaster for low-wage workers, workers of color and vulnerable communities, unquote. Here in New York City, Police evacuated an encampment of asylum seekers outside the Watson Hotel late Wednesday, threatening to arrest anyone who didn't leave. Video shows sanitation workers throwing suitcases into a dumpster. The asylum seekers, who were recently evicted from the hotel, have been protesting the city's plan to house them in a thousand-bed shelter at a remote terminal in Red Hook, Brooklyn. People who've been staying at the shelter told the group South Bronx Mutual Aid they've had to endure inhumane conditions, including extreme cold. To see our full coverage of the story, go to democracynow.org. And in Washington state, more than 85 people locked up at the Northwest Detention Center immigration prison have launched a hunger strike to protest mistreatment and inhumane conditions. Their demands include nutritious meals, clean facilities, and proper medical care. The prisoners say they're forging—they're foregoing food despite harsh retaliation from ICE and GeoGroup, which runs the detention center. Since the hunger strike started, external communications have been cut off, cells have been locked down, and there are reports that guards in riot gear fire pepper spray at hunger strikers. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Nermeen Sheikh. Hi, Nermeen. Hi, Amy, and welcome to our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Mourners gathered in Memphis, Tennessee, Wednesday for the funeral of Tyree Nichols, the 29-year-old black father 
whose death after a brutal police beating has sparked protests across the country. We begin today's show with excerpts from the funeral, which was held at the Mississippi Boulevard Church. This is Vice President Kamala Harris. Mothers around the world, when their babies are born, pray to God when they hold that child that that body and that life will be safe for the rest of his life. Yet we have a mother and a father who mourn the life of a young man who should be here today. They have a grandson who now does not have a father. His brothers and sister will lose the love of growing old with their baby brother. And when we look at this situation, this is a family that lost their son and their brother through an act of violence at the hands and the feet of people who had been charged with keeping them safe. And when I think about the courage and the strength of this family, I think it demands that we speak truth. And with this, I will say, this violent act was not in pursuit of public safety. It was not in the interest of keeping the public safe because one must ask, was not it in the interest of keeping the public safe that Tyree Nichols would be with us here today? Was he not also entitled to the right to be safe? So when we talk about public safety, let us understand what it means in its truest form. Tyree Nichols should have been safe. So I'll just close by saying this. I was, as a senator, as a United States senator, a co-author of the original George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. And as Vice President of the United States, we demand that Congress pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Joe Biden will sign it. And we should not delay, and we will not be denied. It is non-negotiable. The president of the National Action Network and our eulogist for this service, the Reverend Al Sharpton. Early this morning before dawn, I did what I often do when I come to Memphis. I went out to the Lorraine Motel. As a youngster, I joined SCLC Operation Breadbasket. I had been a boy preacher in the Church of God in Christ, and my mother was concerned when I was 12 that I was getting too involved in looking at activism and Adam Clayton Powell and others. She took me to my bishop, Bishop F.D. Washington, 
who said, I know what to do with him, and he brought me to Reverend William Jones, who led Dr. King's organization in New York, and Reverend Jesse Jackson. And at 13, the year Dr. King died, I was 13 years old, I became youth director of the chapter in New York. So it was my growing up in the King movement in the North after his death that makes me come to the Lorraine Hotel and look at the spot that Dr. King died. This morning I took my youngest daughter Ashley with me and uh, in all of the ice I told the story of how Dr. King had came to Memphis to fight for garbage workers, city employees that had no safety. Two had been killed with a malfunction. And here we are, Ashley, 55 years later, looking at the balcony where Martin Luther King shed his blood for city workers, for black city workers, to be able to work in the police department, work in sanitation, and the reason why Mr. and Mrs. Wells, what happened to Tyree is so personal to me, is that five black men that wouldn't have had a job in the police department, would not ever be thought of to be in an elite squad. In the city that Dr. King lost his life, not far away from that balcony, you beat a brother to death. There's nothing more insulting and offensive to those of us that fight to open doors that you walk through those doors and act like the folks we had to fight for to get you through them doors. department by yourself. The police chief didn't get there by herself. People had to march and go to jail and some lost their lives to open the doors for you. And how dare you? Act like that sacrifice was enough for nothing. You ain't in no New England state, you in Tennessee. I bring you to give us our call to action. The Attorney General of Black America, Attorney Benjamin Crump. Miss Ravon, Rodney, Jamal, Michael, Kiana, to all his family, grandma, his son, I know we can't bring Tyree back, but in this call to action, we establish his legacy. And let's never let them forget Memphis, because his legacy will be one of equal justice. It will be the blueprint. <laughs> <laughs> 
going forward. Because we have to remember that in less than 20 days, when it was five black police officers captured on a video engaging in excessive use of force, when they were committing crimes on video, that they were terminated, they were arrested, and they were charged. And, and the police chief Davis, and I have respect for her saying this, the police chief said that it was important that the community see us take swift action. They said it was important that we move swiftly towards justice. Well, when Laquan McDonald was killed in Chicago and by white police officers, it's important that the community see swift justice too. When Alton Sterling was killed in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, Mitch, it's important that the community see swift justice too. When Stephon Clark was killed in Sacramento, California, it's important that the community see swift justice too. When Eric Gardner was killed in Staten Island, New York, it's important that the community see swift justice too. When Pamela Turner was killed in Houston, Texas, it's important that the community see swift justice too. When E.J. Bradford was killed on Thanksgiving night in Birmingham, Alabama, it's important that the community see swift justice too. When Terrence Crouchett was a black man, Reverend Al, having car trouble in the broad daylight in Tulsa, Oklahoma, walking away with his hands up, and they shot him in the back on video. It was important that the community see swift justice too on that. When Botham Jones eating ice cream in his own apartment, police woman come in, shoot and kill him, say, I thought it was my apartment, and said, stand, self-defense in her position, it was a need to have swift justice too. And so no more, no more can they ever tell us when we have evidence on video of them brutalizing us, that it's going to take six years, that it's going to take a month, that it's going to take uh, three years like Laquan McDonald. No, no, no. 20 days. We're going to start counting. We can count to 20. And every time you kill one of us on video, we're going to say the legacy of Tyree Nichols is that we have equal justice swiftly. 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 That these are two of the sisters of Tyree. Tyree was my baby brother. Um, him and I are 11 years apart. He was so special to me, and he loved me, and I loved him dearly. You know, being the oldest of three boys, I had to watch my brothers take them places that I probably didn't want to take them, watch them at times when I didn't want to watch them. But with Ty, I didn't mind. He never wanted anything but to watch cartoons and a big bowl of cereal. <laughs> so it was pretty easy to watch him. Um, on the night of January 7th, my brother was robbed of his life, his passions, and his talents, but not his light. When my mother called me, 
and said, my baby brother was gone. I lost my faith. I cried. I screamed at God, asking how could he let this happen? And then my cries turned to anger. And anger turned to deep sorrow. Um, and a pain I never felt when those monsters murdered my baby brother. It left me completely heartbroken. I see the world showing him love and fighting for his justice. But all I want is my baby brother back. And even in his demise, he was still polite. He asked him to please stop. He was still the polite young man that he always was. He asked him to please stop. And they did it. And that's why my family will never be the same. And I will just always love my baby brother forever. Thank you. That was Kiana Dixon, sister of Tyree Nichols, speaking at her brother's funeral in Memphis, Tennessee, Wednesday. This is Democracy Now! Today, President Biden is meeting with members of the Congressional Black Caucus at the White House to discuss police reform. Coming up, Atlanta announces Cop City will go forward despite growing opposition and the police killing of a forest defender. We'll look at the city's crackdown on protesters. Nineteen of them have been charged with domestic terrorism. Stay with us. Mississippi Boulevard Celebration Choir singing You Are My Strength at the funeral of Tyree Nichols in Memphis Wednesday. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh as we turn to Atlanta, where Mayor Andre Dickens announced Tuesday the highly contested $90 million police training facility known as Cop City is moving forward despite growing opposition and the police killing of a forest defender. Just weeks ago, law enforcement officers, including a SWAT team, were violently evicting protesters who'd occupied a wooded area outside the center when they shot and killed 
longtime activist Manuel Teran, who went by the name Tortuguita. Police claim officers were fired on, though activists there dispute the account. The activists have been camping out in Wilani Forest for months to prevent its destruction. This is Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens speaking Tuesday. Today, I am pleased to report that we have reached an agreement with DeKalb County to issue the construction permits and begin to move the project forward. My administration is aggressively committed to environmental protection. We have been uniquely focused on expanding our protected green spaces in the city. In my first year of office alone, the city of Atlanta and our partners acquired an additional 260 acres throughout the city to be used for parks and green space. At the news conference, a reporter asked police chief Darren Charbaum if any protesters were still occupying the proposed cop city site. This was his response. Uh, as of this uh, time, uh, everyone has availed themselves of our request to vacate the area. Meanwhile, outside City Hall, protesters chanted, Cop City will never be built. This is community organizer Micah Herskin. How dare they stand in front of people and say, oh, this plan where we're tearing down trees is actually good for people and it's good for the economy. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's actually going to protect people. It's obviously false. And I hope that it's reported as such because this is, it's such classic blatant spin that, you know, they're taking us for fools if they think anyone would believe that tearing down trees and putting cement over it is protecting the environment. That's outrageous. Earlier this week, a coalition of more than 1,300 climate and racial justice groups called for the resignation of Atlanta's Democratic mayor, saying he's failed to denounce the police for shooting dead the activist known as Tortuguita, and instead criticized the protesters. This is Mayor Dickens speaking over the weekend about the protesters. And it should be noted that these individuals were not Atlanta or Georgia residents. Most of them traveled into our city to wreak havoc. Well, to look more at the city of Atlanta's crackdown on Cop City and what the protesters have been charged with, domestic terrorism, we're joined by Aline Brown, whose new investigation for Grista's headline documents show how 19 Cop City activists got charged with terrorism. Georgia police are invoking a 2017 terrorism law against activists accused of little more than trespassing. Aline, welcome back to Democracy Now! You report nine of the forest defenders facing domestic terrorism charges are accused simply of trespassing in the woods by camping and living in a treehouse. One person was deemed part of Defend the Atlanta Forest for, quote, occupying a treehouse while wearing a gas mask and camouflage clothing. Can you just please explain? Yeah. So thank you so much for having me. Um, I reviewed 20 uh, arrest warrants for 19 people charged with domestic terrorism in Atlanta and found that none of those individuals are alleged to have committed any act that seriously injured anyone. Like you mentioned, um, nine of the warrants describe no specific illegal acts beyond misdemeanor trespassing, essentially camping in a forest. Um, instead, for those charged in the forest, their um, domestic terrorism allegations seem to rest on the idea that the Department of Homeland Security designated um, people associated with the slogan, Defend the Atlanta Forest, to be domestic violent extremists. You know, I asked DHS about this, and they told me that they don't classify any groups that way, although they do uh, communicate with local and state officials about threats. 
Could you explain, uh, Aline, the the origins of Georgia's uh, terror law and how it is uh, that these people were charged? Yeah. So Georgia's domestic terrorism law uh, passed in 2017, and it was really drafted as a means to confront uh, these mass shootings that we see month in and month out. Um, specifically, lawmakers um, named the 2015 massacre of nine black churchgoers in Charleston, South Carolina, who were uh, shot and killed by white supremacist Dylan Roof. Um, so, you know, essentially this law was created to address um, violence by uh, white supremacists. Um, you know, at the time, civil liberties groups uh, really um, put out that this was going to be used instead against people expressing their First Amendment rights and uh, marginalized communities. So it appears a version of that is what has come to pass. And this really serves as a warning signal to people on both sides of the party, lawmakers that have continued to suggest new domestic terrorism legislation is necessary to confront mass shootings. Roy Wood Jr. of The Daily Show and Comedy Central recently went to the Atlanta forest to cover the movement to stop Cop City. We want to go to a clip. Hey, bingo. Y'all got bingo night? Yeah. Where's the Molotov cocktail station? Where's the gun training station? The majority of us just want to live in peace with each other. We work here on ourselves and we do yoga. And we meditate, get massages here. But y'all get massages? You do yoga, meditate, stretch, and deal with your inner, like therapy. Yeah. That's Roy Wood Jr. of The Daily Show on Comedy Central. If only what was happening there was so funny. Aline Brown, um, if you could take it from there. And also, if they face domestic terrorism charges, how many years in prison do they face? And does this make it easier if the protesters are considered domestic terrorists for SWAT teams to move in and, well, in the case of Tortuguita, to kill them? Um, so the, these charges carry mandatory mini minimums of five to 35 years. So they're very serious charges. Um, and, you know, they, they really, a lot of people are, are, attorneys are saying that they're legally quite flimsy. You know, um, the law says that you have to commit a felony in order to be charged with domestic terrorism in Georgia. Uh, as I've, as we've talked about, um, a lot of these people are charged with misdemeanor trespassing. Um, but, you know, the, the idea is that, um, this may not be meant to, these charges may not be meant to stick. Uh, perhaps instead it's meant to send a message that, um, this is a criminal group. These are terrorists. And, um, you know, maybe someone with more moderate views doesn't want to be affiliated with such a group. Um, so in that sense, it creates a sort of public relations message that perhaps does make it easier to go in and evict people and um, escalate to something like what we saw on January 18th with Tortuguita. We just have a minute, Aline, but if you can respond to the mayor's latest announcement, they're moving forward with Cop City and the feeling in Atlanta around what this is and if you could explain what it is. 
Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, what I found is that this is really a wide-ranging movement. Uh, There are, of course, forest defenders occupying this forest, defending the trees. There are also parks advocates, um, people concerned about uh, police brutality, gentrification, uh, neighborhood associations that have stood out against this project. So I think um, Atlanta officials, as long as they continue to push this, are going to continue to face um, a really kind of strong, wide-ranging movement. Elaine Brown, we want to thank you for being with us. We're going to link to your piece, investigative reporter who covers environmental justice and the ways the climate crisis impacts criminalized populations. The new piece in Grist is headlined, Documents Show How 19 Cop City Activists Got Charged with Terrorism. Coming up, he's nominated for an Oscar for his film, the documentary All That Breathes. We'll speak with director Seanak Sen about the film he made about two brothers in New Delhi who run a bird hospital in their basement next to a metal shop. Stay with us. Galaxy by Cannibal Ox. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. As we turn now to a stunning new film just nominated for an Oscar called All That Breathes, it follows two brothers in New Delhi, India, who are self-taught bird doctors trying to save a type of bird called the black kite, which is suffering from the city's dirty air. They're falling from the sky. This is what Filmmaker Magazine wrote about All That Breathes. You don't care for things because they share the same country, religion, or politics. Life itself is kinship. We're all a community of air. Those are the poetic words heard in the closing voiceover of Seanak Sen's mesmerizing All That Breathes. The film's an ambitiously intricate study of the intersection of environmental collapse, religious tension— and the love of two Muslim brothers for a feathered scavenger unnervingly falling from a smoggy Delhi sky. That again, the opening of the article in Filmmaker magazine. This is the trailer for All That Breathes. When we got our first kite, I'd stay up at night staring at it. It looked like a furious reptile from another planet. 
I've devoted my entire life to this. It took my glasses. What on earth is wrong with this? What are you pointing your finger for? You're not doing me any favors. Sword, if we play dead inside the cage, will the kites try to eat us? Go, try laying down. Life itself is kinship. We are all a community of air. One shouldn't differentiate between all that breathes. The trailer for the Oscar-nominated documentary, All That Breathes. For our radio audience, we've added voiceovers where there are subtitles. The film premieres Tuesday, February 7th on HBO. After its premiere last year, it became the only film ever to win Best Documentary Prize at both the Sundance Film Festival and Cannes. We're joined right now by the film's director, Shanak Sen, a filmmaker, a video artist, a film scholar who lives in New Delhi, India, but joins us today from Munich, Germany. Democracy Now! welcomes you, Shanak Sen. Uh, what a remarkable, breathtaking, transformative film. Now, this is an odd question, but if you can start off by talking not only about why you made this film, but also define it as what you didn't want it to be. Mm -hmm. Actually, well, firstly, thank you. That's very kind of you. Um, the film actually started more than anything else with a clearer sense of what we did not want to make. To begin with, we knew... I mostly wanted to steer clear of three things. Firstly, I did not want to make a nature doc or a wildlife doc. I did not want to make a kind of frontly, conventionally socio-political documentary. And mostly, I did not want to make, a, you know, a sweet film about nice people doing good things. Because, uh, that version is possible of this film. And instead, we wanted to make something which was cinematic about the air of Delhi about birds, about this one remarkable and singular family in Delhi that takes care of these black kites and, uh, you know, put together a poetic, lyrical, cinematic piece. In terms of how the film started, uh, the thing is, when you live in, a, in the city of Delhi, you're almost always preoccupied with the air because, uh, you know, the air has taken on a kind of almost creepy sentience in the recent years. It's this grey, opaque, heavy palpable, tactile expanse, and you're always sort of preoccupied with it. And alongside that was also a kind of philosophical interest in um, um, thinking about the entanglement of human and non-human uh, life. So essentially, I wanted to do something which was a kind of uh, abstract triangulation of air, birds, and humans. 
and essentially that's how the film began i uh, i remember sitting in a car one day and looking up at the gray expanse of the sky of delhi and looking at the black dots peppering the sky and at one point i had the distinct impression that i saw one of those black dots the birds the black kite uh, sort of fall a plummet to the ground and since then i was gripped by the figure of a bird that falls off the sky and i literally googled where do birds that fall off the sky go and the work of the brothers came up and the minute you go to the tiny cramped basement where the brothers for the last 15 years have saved over 25000 black kites it's inherently very cinematic and you know it was it's very very dense and it's a tiny industrial kind of a basement and you know since then a film is like a free fall it's like a fever dream really and it took us 3 years to make it and uh, essentially this is how the film began well shonak i mean the film uh is really of the highest aesthetic quality which uh uh all reviewers have said and the mood you've created uh is simultaneously melancholic but also transcendent and part of the reason for that is uh the brothers the kinds of things uh the brothers do of course in treating these wounded birds but also these extraordinary insights they offer throughout the film on both the human and animal condition so could you talk about that how uh when you started speaking to the brothers what you were most struck by and when you decided that they would be the central focus of the film you wanted to make Well the thing is that I you know I knew that the story had to be uh ecological sociopolitical and emotional it had to have a kind of emotional peg and had to be about this family and you know it had to be a kind of like life is a dense entanglement of things and it had to sort of have all these things for it to be truly moving uh for all kinds of audiences so and when I met the brothers I realized that apart from it being a very interesting kind of an emotional story between the two of them their relationship with the birds um and you know like the stuff that was happening outside around their homes so it was interesting but more than anything else the brothers are just such philosophers you know such philosophers of the urban and um, i soon realized that we had to have a form for the film that had to be meditative and contemplative and actually aestheticized so for the first year i was doing a lot of handheld verite kind of more sort of conventional shooting um but soon i realized that all that footage had to be junked so we had to actually trash about 8 months of uh, shooting because the form had to be more cinematic and meditative in sync with how the brothers were because the brothers are like organic intellectuals you know who it's a kind of experiential wisdom of having uh closely focused on birds and other life forms for uh, almost two decades uh and therefore we decided that we need to we needed to have a kind of outer covering of fiction films so uh, even though we don't tell characters what to do but you know we use things like tracks and dollies and uh you know sliders and and cranes and stuff to tell a non-fiction story so i think the outer shell or the outer covering of the film is like a very hopefully a very cinematic kind of a aestheticized uh, object whereas the way the people are behaving is obviously naturalistic because nobody's told them how to behave but essentially the form or the grammar of the film had to be this kind of an aesthetic thing to really get the point across um in a more you know nuanced sublime manner and this is not a film that really um uh, frontally says what it has to say it's all oblique so the form had to be beautiful essentially 
Yeah, that's absolutely true. The film is extremely uh, subtle in the things that it says and also the things that it does not say. Now, you've I just want to ask about something before we go to another clip from the film. You've said that films are meant to be Trojan horses, uh, saying in another interview, quote, we have to sneak in things and whisper things to the better angels of people's nature. Explain mm-hmm. what you mean. Well, the thing is that, uh, I mean, on all registers, really, a lot of uh, my grouse with a lot of environmental films prior to this was that there was a lot of, you know, gloom and doom, either despair or a kind of romanticized, almost prelapsarian vitality. And, you know, life is more plural than that. And um, I just felt like the idea is that you have to open up the conversation. We are filmmakers and we are not like a film shouldn't pamphleteer, you know, it shouldn't show its cards too clearly the idea is to emotionally move audiences and especially audiences that don't want to have a conversation with you the problem with a lot of either environmental films or political films and so on is that when you uh, you know when you go at audiences with a sledgehammer and you know hold them by the collar and say feel bad about this it ends up being too pedantic or moralistic or didactic and very often it just it feels a bit off putting or you're either preaching to the choir or just alienating audiences who have a different value system and the idea is that you know our skill set is to be able to rouse feelings and emotionally move people and the idea is to open the conversation and not close it so um, you know to have a film where things are sort of nudged at obliquely or tangentially or let people sense the things that you want to communicate instead of sort of frontally uh, telling them on the nose that's essentially even in this film you know the the things that we want to talk about are really the epistemic wallpaper of their lives and you don't need to really constantly shine a light on it very frankly or conspicuously the environmental stuff the uh, you know the uh, unrest around them all of that is i think fairly uh, palpable but in in a minor key and that's how my favorite films are those that obliquely nudge at things that have a sideways glance at things in every way politically ethically uh, socially in every way really. that's what i meant i want to go to a clip from your film all that breathes uh, beginning with the two brothers helper salik holding a wounded kite that famous bird that flies over delhi in the basement where they treat the birds A nestling. The nestlings have started coming. Baby season's about to begin. Many more will come. Today's the fifth, right? It'll get crazy soon. How many infants so far? Five to six last week, right? Nestlings? Turn it. It'll survive, right? It has metabolic bone disease. We can fix that. Let's see if it can stand. It can't. Can't straighten its legs.
जब हम पहली चील घर लाए वन वी गॉट अ फर्स्ट टाइट स्टे अप एट नाइट स्टेयरिंग एट इट खूंखार रेप्टाइल लगती थी इट लुक लाइक अ फ्यूरियस रेप्टाइल फ्रॉम अनदर प्लेनेट चीलों को गोश्त खिलाने से सबब इट सेड दैट फीडिंग काइट्स अर्न सबब रिलीजियस क्रेडिट स्काय Have you ever felt vertigo looking into the sky? We're talking to Shaunak Sen, uh, who is the filmmaker who made this Oscar-nominated film, All That Breathes. I have to admit, Shaunak, I watched this film after midnight last night with my little pup Zazu at my side, who cocked her head every time she heard the sounds and the animals could not stop staring. Um, <laughs> but tell us about who these brothers are with their helper— how they came to set up this animal hospital well the brothers um, they live in the northern part of delhi nadim and saud and their cousin salik and over the last 15 years they've actually treated over 25000 black kites through what what otherwise appears to be a very slapdash and formal kind of a work they work out of a very um, f- for the longest time they worked out of a very grubby dingy tiny cramped uh, industrial basement where they, they save these magisterial birds that are falling down in scores uh, in delhi in delhi from the skies really and um, they well they started because initially what happened was that they realized that a lot of the um, uh, hospitals were you know like overrun and they had to treat the birds uh, themselves and um, they had no training in it at all no medical training at all and they were they used to be bodybuilders amateur bodybuilders as teenagers and they would pick up injured black kites and other kinds of raptors birds of prey and uh, bring them home and sort of develop their own techniques to uh, repair and heal these birds and one thing led to the other and over time you know people started bringing their injured kites to them and today it's become this kind of a um informal hospital moving towards a uh, full formality now but it's uh what they've done is singular and incredible and wonderful but the film actually apart from just the loveliness of what they do is really an investigation of their minds because they're also profound philosophers in some ways and it's an investigation of their lives and uh you know given stuff that is happening around them and also what compels people to do what they do and what it means to when in the foreground of your life is a kind of consideration of the entanglement of human non human life and when you think of when you keep thinking of a kind of neighborliness or kinship with human non human life so the film is a kind of <clears throat> excuse me my interest in the film was really about their minds and their everyday quotidian life and that's how it started Shanak let's go to another clip from uh, all that breeds which begins with a wounded bird being brought into the basement for treatment
हटा Move aside. Check the water temperature. I don't get it. It says one, two, three, four. Salik belongs to the digital age. He doesn't understand the mercury thermometer. How you're cleaning it behind its ears? Reminds me of how mother used to bathe us. <laughs> Our foreign funding our foreign funding application has been rejected Pardon? what our foreign funding application yes the FCRA application but why they haven't given any reason what will we do now what we've always done get by somehow Can't we apply again? Not for six months. Then it'll take another six months to process it. So a full year is gone? Yes, a year's await. We'll need to manage domestic funding. So that's another clip from All That Breeds. Shauna, can you talk about that? And then we have a minute. Just finally, uh, if you could mention the filmmakers who've inspired you and inspired this film. Uh, For sure. Well, you know, the thing is that this was not a film which is like a regular um, Verite observational documentary. And I wanted to make something which is cinematic and, uh, you know, felt aesthetic and beautiful. And so cinematographically, I was really very influenced by this Russian filmmaker, a nonfiction filmmaker called Viktor Kosakovsky, um, who has these incredible, uh, you know, incredibly well shot films and uh, like phenomenal panning and tilting. And so I'd heavily recommend him. In terms of fiction, I, uh, you know, the Russian great uh, Tarkovsky was a huge influence. Um, in terms of the edit, uh, a New York based um, filmmaker called Gianfranco Rossi was very, very, very influential. Um, other than that, just, you know, a ton of films that use um, slow takes and have a particular relationship with ecology or the world or the planetary or nature has been have been important. For instance, uh, Terence Malik uh, was a profound influence. And also people we have who are able seconds, to hold, And uh, also, like, are able to hold the political alongside the aesthetic is what has been very, very influential for me. Thank you. Shonak Sen, thank you. The Delhi-based director of the Oscar-nominated documentary All That Breathes premieres Tuesday, February 7th on HBO. Speaking to us from Munich, Germany, I'm Amy Goodman with Nermin Sheikh.